How are y'all today? I, I will just say, standing in front of you fine people every time, I, I, I'd like to think that I'd have more not nervousness, but it, every time. So y'all bear with me, pray for me today. So grateful to be here with you in this capacity with an open Bible before us. I am um, happy to welcome each and every one of you to the house of the Lord today. And those who are joining us online, we're so glad that you're worshiping with us. Uh, we are continuing in a series of messages that our pastor began a few weeks ago on victorious Christian living. And over the last several weeks, we've seen a number of things, the first of which the importance, the foundation of offering yourself as a living sacrifice before the Lord. Uh, we've seen also uh, the importance of being filled with the Holy Spirit from Ephesians chapter 5. And then last week, we noticed from Ephesians 6, uh, this importance of taking unto yourself the whole armor of God. Paul says that we may be able to stand within, uh, withstand in the evil day. And today, we'll, we'll expound upon that passage, that that idea of taking the sword of the Spirit, which Paul says is the Word of God. And so we'll spend some time today seeing how the sword of the Spirit is an effective tool in our spiritual warfare that we may be victorious disciples. Our text today is 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 14 through 17. It is on page 936 in your pew Bibles. And I believe what we'll look at today is the most important passage in the Bible about the Bible. If you're able to stand with me, please stand in honor of God's word as we read it. It is holy. It is infallible. It is perfect. Hear the perfect word of our perfect God. But as for you, continue in what you've learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it. And how from childhood you've been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Would you pray with me? Father, we come before you in the name of your son, Jesus, our Savior, our Lord, with thanksgiving on our lips, having worshiped you in song. And now, Lord, we come to the time where we hear your voice. I pray that you would speak to us. I pray that you would sanctify us by your truth. Your word is truth. And may the preacher decrease this morning. May Eric Mitchell be brought to nothing that Christ might be magnified and glorified. We pray for that in this moment. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. Thank you. God spoke to me this morning. I wasn't hallucinating. I'm not exaggerating. The Lord of glory spoke to me this morning, and I want to share this experience with you. I Got up and went to my office this morning, still a little bit tired. The family was still sleeping. Had my favorite sip of co coffee, my favorite coffee that I like to drink in the morning. And I began to pray. 
And after a few moments, I heard the Lord say these words to me. He said, I have made known my salvation. I have no doubt that it was God himself speaking to me. The words were clear. They were unmistakable. And so I responded with praise and adoration. Yes, Lord, glory to your name. And he continued, I have revealed my righteousness in the sight of the nations. When I heard this, I looked at a globe that's to my right in my office. And I thought about the billions upon billions of people all over the world who desperately need to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I was astounded that God would speak to me so directly about his heart for the nations. And yet he continued. He said, I have remembered my steadfast love and my faithfulness to the house of Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen my salvation. And I looked up at the large cross that's mounted on my wall and I thought of the crucified Savior. I rejoice that millions of people know that Savior and have experienced salvation through him. And in that moment, I just want to tell you, nothing else mattered to me. The God of the universe was speaking directly to me. And I had great appreciation for that. I had great love and adoration for him. But I will tell you, I also had great appreciation for the Bible in that moment. Because it was through the Bible that I heard these words. By engaging Scripture, this is, this is so important. By engaging Scripture, I'm able to have that experience with God nearly every day. And one of the most remarkable things about that is that that communion with Christ, it's accessible, it's available to all of us in this room. If you want to hear the very same words I heard from God this morning, you need only turn to Psalm 98, verses 2 and 3, because that's where I heard them. The glory of the Bible is that it is the very voice of God. He speaks to us, even today, through his word. And Hillcrest, I'll tell you, there is no place to find a richer, deeper, higher, more powerful word from God than this supernatural book I'm holding in my hand right here. What I'm describing, this practice of private devotion, what many have called having their quiet time, what we'll call today abiding in Christ, this is essential for the Christian life. And when it comes to living a victorious life, one that we all want to experience, there is no victory. There's no way to consistently walk as a victorious disciple without abiding in Christ, abiding in his word. Uh, Pastor Jim has said it often. I agree with him when he says this. Of all the commands that the Lord Jesus gave, perhaps the most important is this command to the disciple to abide in Christ. You recall this, John chapter 15, Jesus says to his disciples the night in which he was betrayed. John 15, four, he says, abide in me and I in you as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. To abide is to remain, to dwell, to reside. We call our homes 
our residence, right? We reside there. Uh, We often call our homes our humble abode. We abide there. And to abide in Christ is to make him our very dwelling, to find our home in him. And as Jesus made this statement about abiding in him, he went on to say, verse 5 of John 15, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do what? Say it out loud. Nothing. So by this, we see how essential abiding is. It's not just a good idea. It's not just a suggestion for the disciple. It's our very life. We live by abiding in Christ. And so we see the importance of abiding, and it really has everything to do, as we will see for the rest of our time today, with hearing his voice and responding to it. And in so saying this, I'm making the point that the Bible is essential to our abiding in Christ. I agree with Dr. Sinclair Ferguson when he says these words, our relationship to Christ is intimately connected to what we do with our Bibles. So in our text today, Paul is encouraging young Timothy, his protege. He is strengthening him as he is in the trenches of ministry and spiritual warfare. As we might have known already, Timothy, by the time we get to 2 Timothy, he's been in the ministry for a little while, but he's still a young man, and he's facing many challenges. So Paul writes to him what amounts to his final letter to encourage this young man and to equip him with what is necessary for victory. Now, this is something of a topical message today. <clears throat> this is not an extended series through 2 Timothy, but I always like to contextualize Study and read and preach the Bible in context. So if you will bear with me for a moment, I'd like to catch us up to where are we by the time we get to 2 Timothy 3.14. As I said, Paul is strengthening Timothy. He is helping him while he's in the trenches of ministry. And he encourages him in the first chapter. He says, Timothy, don't, don't be timid. Don't be fearful. Stir up the gift that is in you. Our ESV will say, fan into flames the gift that you received. He encourages Timothy to be bold in his stance for the gospel. And then he encourages him to be kind, to be gentle, to be a leader like Christ. Because he knows that Timothy will face opposition. And by the time we get to the beginning of chapter 3, if you look in your Bibles of 2 Timothy chapter 3, He says these words, but understand this, Timothy, that in the last days, there will come times of difficulty. I love the King James Version. Know this, in the last days, perilous times shall come. Paul speaks of a future difficulty, a time of of hardship. And look how he describes it. Does he describe rising gas prices, wars and rumors of war? Does he describe viruses and pandemics? What does he describe as the difficult times? Look at verse 2 of chapter 3, 2 Timothy 3. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, 
arrogant, abusive people will be disobedient to their parents. They will be ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable. They will be slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit. People will be lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. Avoid such people. Notice the emphasis is on the culture, what will make up the type of people. And I just read the list, and it's a horrifying one. But I'm going to go for an understatement today. That's now. Paul's writing to Timothy of a future time of difficulty is our now. Turn on the news. Look at W-E-A-R, and you'll see all of that, what I just read, on our daily news. We live in the time marked by these things. Every day we see what John Bunyan in the Pilgrim's Progress described as the vanity fair. We live in an evil culture. And as such, we are called by God to be counter. Cultural. We are called to live victorious Christian lives in the midst of an ongoing battle with sin and Satan. And so the question that remains for us today is, how do we, how do we gain victory? What is the way that a disciple of Jesus can be victorious living in a dark, evil world like the one we live in? Simply put, we must take unto us the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. And so for the rest of our time today, I'll just give some key reminders, statements about the Bible that I think will be helpful to us as we fight the good fight. First and foremost, believers are called to abide in the word. Uh, this is perhaps the most important thing I'll say today or, or the main point of the passage. The scripture is supernatural. It is God's very word, and so it is living, and it is active. And if we neglect it, if we ignore it, we will remain powerless. We will not have victory. And so the command is to abide. Look at verse 14 of 2 Timothy 3. Paul says, but as for you, notice the contrast. So I, I, I gave this description earlier. People will be heartless. They will be brutal. They will be unappeasable. But as for you, Timothy, and as for you, Hillcrest, continue in what you have learned. That verb, continue, in Greek, meno, is the same verb Jesus used in John 15. Abide in me. Paul says to Timothy, continue, abide, remain, dwell. Make your home in the Bible, as Charles Spurgeon often said. Visit many good books, but live in the Bible. And how do we do that? How do we abide in God's word? I have greatly benefited from the ministry of the Navigators. Many of you have heard of the Navigators before, the parachurch ministry. And one of their lasting contributions for me has been the word hand. The word hand. It's really just five ways for you to engage the Bible. I'll say them and then I'll go over them one by one. 
We can hear the word and read the word and study the word. Memorize the word and meditate on the word. It's just a way to get a handle on the Bible. We hear the word. This is the simplest and easiest of the five ways. You're doing something of that even now. Every Sunday, you come to Hillcrest, we preach the Bible. And every time we read the Bible, just moments ago, I had you stand and we read it together. You could get a Bible app like Version, and cut it on your phone and listen to God's word. This is one way of taking the word into our hearts and in our minds. But not only that, we can read the word. I'd say this is perhaps the most common way I engage the Bible. And I'm just going to tell you, in your reading of God's word, you are four to five times more likely to consistently do it if you have a plan to do it. It's just like my uh, uh, elementary school teachers and middle school teachers would tell me, if you fail to plan, you're planning to fail, right? So it is with engaging God's word. If you think that you're gonna consistently engage the Bible without a plan, you may find some difficulty with that. And so one of the things we do at Hillcrest, I think we do it pretty well, is provide a plan for people to read the Bible if they would like to follow that plan. There are plans that take you through the entire Bible in one year. There are plans that will take you through the entire New Testament in one year, like the one we're doing now. But whatever your plan is, find one and stick with it because that is one way to engage God's word. We hear the word. We read the word. Next, we study the word. And the difference between studying and reading is reading is for breath. Study is for depth. You see the difference. Reading is you're just kind of going through the text. But when you study, that's when you get your pen, your pencil, your highlighter, maybe a commentary. And you're engaging in a deep dive of God's word. And we do that every Sunday morning at Hillcrest right now. There are groups meeting right now as I speak going through Paul's letters, 1st and 2nd Thessalonians. Every Wednesday night, Pastor Jim takes us through a study of God's word. Right now, he's going through Paul's life and letters in Northwest Hall. We have an amazing collection, growth group of women who will be going through the entire Bible this year. And my brother, David Ruffin, he's launching a group this coming Wednesday. Guess what the group is called? How to Study the Bible. Uh, we, don't, we don't try to make it confusing at all what we're doing. We, we try our best to help people in abiding in God's word. And then we do that by hearing it, by reading it, by studying it, but also by memorizing it. Now, I know this is where everybody starts <clears throat> clearing their throat and shuffling a little bit. Because we come to the memorizing part and we're like, man, I can hear it. I can read it. I can even study it, but man, you're asking me to actually memorize God's word? I don't have a good memory. And that may be a factor. You may not have a good memory. But what what if I made a deal with you today? What if for every verse you memorized, I offered you a crisp $50 bill? Do you think that would change your ability To memorize God's word? I think so. Is it our ability or is it our motivation? 
I can tell you right now, the benefit to your soul of hiding the word of God in your heart is way more than 50 bucks. The psalmist said in Psalm 119, how can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to the word. Psalm 119.11, your word I have hid in my heart that I might not sin against you. Memorizing scripture has benefited me in times of difficulty, sorrow, and pain, in times of evangelism and sharing my faith, in times of giving a word of encouragement to others. It is an invaluable discipline to memorize God's word and And you can do that. We can hear it. We can read it. We can study it. We can memorize it. And yes, we can even meditate upon it. Meditate upon it. Now, when I say meditation, some of you think of Eastern religions, perhaps. Someone doing yoga or something like that, making strange noises. That's not what I'm describing. Now, pagan meditation is emptying the mind. But Christian, biblical meditation is filling the mind. It's, it's kind of like your mind is a cup of hot water. And God's word is a tea bag. Hearing the word is something like dipping it in once. Some of the flavor gets into the water, but but really not much, right? Reading and studying and meditating and memorizing God's word is you dip it a few more times and you start to see the water take on a color. The, The bag and its contents are infusing the water and influencing it. But meditation is letting the Tea bags steep in the water. It's letting the truth of God's word make their home in your mind and in your heart. It's letting your thoughts and your decisions and the way you feel and the way you respond be completely influenced by the word of God. Meditation is the intentional filling of the mind with God's word. And I want you to think back to, from this illustration back to the very first sermon that Pastor Jim gave in this series, Romans chapter 12. He says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, that you offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable before God, which is your reasonable service, your spiritual worship. And then he goes on to say, don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Well, how do you do that? How do you renew your mind? You steep. You steep in God's word. You abide in the scriptures. And so it is that believers are called to abide in the word. But next I'd say believers can trust the sufficiency of the word of God. Look with me again at our passage, 2 Timothy 3, verses 16 and 17. The Bible says there, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, And for training in righteousness, verse 17, that purpose clause, what is the reason for it? That the man of God may be complete, 
equipped for every good work. Anybody want to be complete in here? A fully formed disciple of Jesus Christ? Anybody want to look like Jesus in your life? Then you need the scripture. All you need is the scripture, but you need all the scripture. Uh, this is our Protestant heritage. This is sola scriptura, scripture alone. This is tota scriptura, scripture in its totality. We need it all. If being complete is the goal, then the Bible is all sufficient for you. And, and who is the person who most supremely illustrates this? Sunday school answer, Jesus. <laughs> when I would lead the college students connect group, I would ask them a question every week, at least one, where the answer is obviously Jesus. He is the supreme example. And what I'm referring to is Matthew chapter 4, when Jesus is in the wilderness facing spiritual warfare with the devil. You recall this passage. He employed one method over and over and over again. And it's critical for us to see what's happening. There is a comparison and a contrast between Adam in the Garden of Eden and Jesus in the wilderness. The Adam who represented all of humanity and Jesus who would come to represent those who are in him by faith, those who receive him. Adam failed, but the Lord Jesus Christ succeeded. Adam was our representative in utopian circumstances. He was in a beautiful garden. He had companionship. He had food. But the second Adam, the one who came to succeed, he was in difficult circumstances. While Adam was in a garden, Jesus was in a barren wilderness. While Adam had the companionship of Eve, Jesus was all alone. And Adam had every food from every tree except one to eat. But Jesus was hungry. Forty days and forty nights. He was famished. He was weak. He was tired. And that is when the devil came to him. Have you noticed? The devil tends to come after high highs. Jesus was in the Jordan River being baptized. There's this beautiful picture of the Father speaking from heaven and the Holy Spirit lighting upon him like a dove. This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. And then he comes, if you are the son of God. You see the tactics of the evil one when we're tired, when we're hungry, when we're weak. That's when he comes. And he comes to the Lord and he says, if you're the son of God, turn these stones to bread. Anybody recall how Jesus responded? Did he, did he explain to the devil why he was fasting? Did he get into an argument about what he was trying to accomplish? No. Did he even do what I would expect Jesus to do, which is say to the devil, I'm the Lord of glory. Be gone, evil one. He doesn't even do that. Jesus, as our example, responds in the way that we ought to respond. If you are the son of God, command these stones to become bread. No, it is written. Man shall not live by bread alone. But by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And when he's tempted again, Jesus says, it is written. And yet a third time he's tempted. And yet a third time Jesus says, it is written. It is written. He's wielding the sword of the spirit because he knows 2,000 years from that point, 
There'll be a gathering on the corner of Nine Mile and Gotti Lane with all these disciples of his. He knew that his example will be the one for us to follow. This is my point. We have real trials and temptations. Someone listening to me now struggles with anxiety and worry and fear. Can I demonstrate to you how this works? It is written, fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Isaiah 41, 10. You struggle with worry and anxiety? It is written, be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let our requests be made known to God and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Do you see? You see how the sword of the Spirit is a mighty weapon against these struggles. Jesus said, in this world, you will have tribulation, but take cheer, take heart. I have overcome the world. And so we apply the word of God to our struggles with fear. But what about grief? What about depression? It is written. Jesus wept. Before I leave this earth, I want to preach a whole sermon on the shortest verse of the Bible. Jesus wept. Consider the pain encapsulated in that one statement. Lazarus, his friend, had died. We know the passage, John chapter 11. And Jesus, before he died, when he was sick, delayed his coming until he died. Doesn't it just unsettle you sometimes when Jesus does something different than what you expect for him to do. And he did in this case. And these are good friends of his, Lazarus, Mary, and Martha. But Jesus knew his plan, his purpose. He knew what the Father would do through him. So he had a plan to delay until Lazarus died, the whole while knowing that he would go to raise him from the dead. We know this. And he, and he went to do just that. And when Jesus encountered Mary and Martha and he saw the friends of Lazarus, Jesus saw the grief He saw the grief that they had. <clears throat> Our high priest sympathizes with us. I know people who struggle with depression. Can I just give you this word? The Bible says it is written, Jesus wept, it is written. We don't have a high priest that can't sympathize with our weaknesses. That's not the one we have. But we have one who in every way was tempted as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us come boldly to the throne of grace that we might receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. 
You see, the word, the word of God is mighty to help us in our struggles. Jesus, he is a, he is a co-sufferer with us. He goes through the valley with us. He weeps when we weep. And if you meditate on that, you'll be encouraged. In fact, I will spend several weeks on Wednesday nights. I'm starting a group this coming Wednesday night, 23rd, looking at the heart of Christ for sinners and sufferers. You're welcome to join me in that study. It's called Gentle and Lowly. And we'll just be doing that, applying what the Bible says about Jesus to our hearts so that we might be blessed by it. So the scripture is something we're called to abide in. The scripture is sufficient for us in all of life. And then third, I'd say the scripture or the Bible has an inspired origin. Look at verse 16 again. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Breathed out by God. Any King James Bibles in the audience, I believe your text will say all scripture is inspired by God. And that's a good word, inspired. And when we say inspired, we, we sometimes have a different understanding of what Paul was saying when he wrote this text. This is why we use the word inspired, but I'd like to explain what it means for just a moment. This will be instructive for us. The word in Greek is theopneustos. It's a compound word. The prefix theos, the Greek word for God, and the suffix pneuma or neustos, referring to wind, spirit, or breath. Only time this word is used in all the Bible, right here. Paul is saying that all scripture is literally the breath of God to us. Not so much that it's inspired, but that it's expired, if you will. It comes out of his mouth and onto the page. He breathed out. And the words we have in the book are what he literally said. Do you believe this? I dare say every single article of our holy faith rests on that one truth as a foundation. Would you agree? Everything the Bible says about Jesus, we know it's true because it's from the word of God, from Genesis to Revelation, all the prophecies, all the miracles, everything is the word of God. Every paragraph, every sentence, every phrase, every word, dare I say, every little letter. Jesus said every iota, every, every dot, every tittle is divinely inspired. God breathed scripture. Look at Peter's words in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 21. He says, no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. That is, scripture is not of human origin, but how do we get it? Men spoke from who? From God, as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. This, my friends, is the very word of God himself, and it is a priceless, priceless asset to us. And so that leads to a fourth point, which is the useful function of the Bible. The Bible has a useful function, and Paul gives it to us in verse 16. It is profitable for what? For what? For teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. And this is where we'll conclude today. The four functions of Scripture. First, teaching. He says the word of God is useful for teaching. We get our word didactic from this word, didaskalia. It means instruction. 
And whenever I think of this word, I think of uh, the movie Sandlot. Any lovers of Sandlot? It's, come, it's coming up to summertime. You recall this movie where a young man moves to a new community. He doesn't have any friends, but he wants to take initiative and go make some friends. So he goes to the baseball diamond to make friends with baseball buddies. Only problem is he knows nothing about baseball. He doesn't know how to catch, how to throw. They're talking about Babe Ruth. He thinks it's Bambi. He's in a lot of trouble. He needs instruction. And so the leader of the group notices that. Benny the Jet Rodriguez, he, he comes to him in his ignorance, if you will. And he says, let me, let me help you. What's that, what's that on your head? Is it, what's my hat? He says, yeah, you have a fireplace? Throw, throw that in your fireplace. You don't need that anymore. Here's a, here's a baseball cap and here's a glove and here's how you catch. And when you throw, you ever, you ever thrown a newspaper before on your paper route? Yeah, I've done that before. Release it at its highest point. He teaches this young man how to be a baseball player. And before long, he's hitting a home run. This is instruction. This is the thing that Paul is saying. The Bible is designed to instruct us. That, you know what that is? You know all the world that is? That's discipleship. Somebody has to teach us when we come to Jesus how to study the Bible and how to pray. And somebody has to teach us how to share our faith. And the Bible is useful to teach us those things, but it's also useful for rebuking, rebuke, or reproof. Those are often synonymous words. And I want you to understand the idea of rebuke or reproof in the context of the Garden of Eden. I went there before with Adam. I want to go there again with Eve. You recall this. The devil came to Eve in the Garden, and he engaged her in the Word of God. The first question he said out of his mouth, did God really say And she knew. She knew what God said, didn't she? She had been instructed in the word of God. But it it doesn't appear that she was skilled in reproving error. Eve was not deceived because she didn't know the word. She knew it, but she did not know how to reprove error. When the serpent brought false teaching to her, she had no capacity to expose it as false. But this is a a core function of the scripture, to recognize when something is wrong. This is what Jesus was doing with the devil in the wilderness. The devil brought a temptation to him. He exposed it as wrong. And that's what we must do as we engage in temptations of all kinds. The Bible is useful for teaching, for reproof, for correcting. If If the reproof is recognizing when something's wrong and exposing it, correcting is restoring something. This is what Paul would do to the Galatians. He starts the letter off with strong rebuke. Oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? But then he he ends the letter with a warm correction. He rebukes their rejection of the gospel when they believed that they could be saved by works of the law, but then he corrects them and says, no, salvation, justification is by faith alone. That's rebuke and correction. And then finally, the scripture is useful for training us in righteousness. Paul says it's useful for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Abiding in God's word, Hillcrest, is a greenhouse. It's an incubator. 
for Christlikeness. You know, when we send our brave men and women to boot camp, when we send them, they're recruits. But when they come back, there's something more, aren't they? They're Marines or airmen. They're soldiers. They're Navy SEALs, whatever the case may be. And what's the difference? Is it just a matter of time? They were there for a few weeks, and then the passing of time, boom, they're that. No. Training was happening there. And the scripture is useful to train disciples to be warriors for the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord spreads out a buffet table for us to feast at his table until we are full as full can be. But we have to make the time, sit down at the table and dine with the Lord over the table of his word. Amen. Disciple of Jesus. Let me leave you with these words. Whenever you engage the Bible, something more than meets the eye is happening. By divine inspiration, the book is supernatural. And by regeneration, by the new birth, you are supernatural. And so through the natural act of engaging God's word, hearing it, reading it, studying it, memorizing it, meditating upon it, you, my beloved brothers and sisters, are engaging in the supernatural. And this is where Jesus meets us in his word. This is his word that all who agree say amen.